God, for your gracious love, um, we are grateful. And that even a, a topic as difficult as this one, that we can open the box without fear uh, as your beautiful face greets us and walks us gently and firmly towards wholeness and health and freedom. So I ask that this morning would just be another step on that journey along the way as we continue to talk about um, what is a very tumultuous subject in our culture. Bless us with your spirit. And we thank you, Jesus, for the work that you've done on the cross and the empty tomb. In your name, amen. Well, we do have just one more Sunday to talk about sexuality here, uh, and then we'll head into some other environments on that. But just by way of review, if you've been here the last couple of weeks, we covered a lot of ground in that time. Or if you weren't here, then I can give you just a quick snapshot of where we've been in these two weeks. We're really, as I thought about it, three different pillars or three significant realities were kind of brought forth in these two weeks relative to sexuality as we try to construct kind of a house in which we can have these conversations. And so there's a couple of pillars that Kevin brought out in the first week and kind of reviewing some of that. I was very moved and sparked a lot of conversation in my own mind and with people around me of this idea, pillar number one, that there really is nothing under heaven or on earth that is new under the sun in our sexuality. And that was, uh, as Kevin talked about these things, he, he brought up the idea that in the city of Corinth, in the biblical text, many of the same kinds of practices we experience in our culture today that we see being streamed through all of these Netflixes and Amazon Primes that are often quite confusing are actually not new. And I think what was helpful to note on that was that in my own confusion to look back and to say, well, hang on just a minute, because our culture likes to claim that we finally have become more spiritually enlightened, or we finally have become more sexually enlightened. We finally have the kind of freedom that the old, archaic, old-fashioned ways of the past never experienced. We know better today than they would have back then, but there's nothing new under heaven and earth. And so to, to recognize this deconstructs that claim that we're finally just getting smarter about everything. I remember it was about a year ago, I was in a local college and they asked me to present on sexuality to their entire faculty. And I was going to be following a presenter. I didn't know what this presenter was going to be talking about. Uh, she was from the University of Minnesota, a sociology professor there. And she got up and gave her presentation. And she presented the idea, as the first time I think I had seen it, it'll be up on the screen in just a minute, of the gender-bred person. And so the gender-bred person, and I know some of the writing is blurry and kind of uh, hard to see here on this screen, but the idea of the gender-bred person was that current research she was suggesting suggests that there isn't actually a male or a female gender, that we find ourselves all day long somewhere on a continuum of masculinity and femininity. And this is sort of all the rage in the research going on that then bleeds its way out into the culture and into our classrooms and into our educational settings. It's always sort of the research institutions that over time uh, articulate ideas of fact and truth and they begin to bleed their way in a wide variety of ways to the point that um, now, instead of having just masculine or feminine as choices in gender, that last check, I believe there's 150 different kinds of ways in which you can identify yourself somewhere on the continuum. And that may change uh, based on any kind of given moment. 
And my students at Northwestern are growing up in more in a very different kind of environment where they have a whole lot of questions about where they may fall on the gender continuum. And so she presented, and I sat, oh, dear, I've got to get up in 10 minutes now, 8 and 7 and 6, and she kept talking, and the time got closer. I was texting Hallie literally in the middle of it saying, what am I going to say? What am I going to do? And long story short, I sort of stood up and suggested that uh, even though we have to be very careful to not just automatically stereotype and generalize that this is masculine and this is feminine, we have to be very careful to not just hem people in that within the biblical text, there really is a masculinity and femininity, and it's the coming together of that that forms this beautiful image of God. The room was pretty tense for the rest of the time as we did question and answer on that, but the point being is that... uh, Oftentimes, research is sort of the cutting-edge stuff. This is the stuff that's important, that we need to attend to. And when you're in university life, there's always new research, and profs have to get their uh, advancement and tenure based on new research. So you kind of can explore anything, and it just keeps going, and it's the idea that the most recent is the most reliable. And Kevin, I thought, did a good job of helping us see, well, hey, hang on a second. There's nothing new under heaven or earth. We've seen this movie before. And so maybe we could explore some of the reasons sociologically in our culture as to why we're asking these same kinds of questions. It was just an important pillar. If we're going to continue to have these conversations on sexuality, to be students of the past and remember where we've been, and and that might help give some shape of where we are today. Second pillar on this that Kevin established in the first week was that Sexual union is more than physical, that there is a relationality or there's a relational union that's part of it. There is a spiritual union that's part of it. And I think we sort of get that just intuitively as we walk about our life. I think it's part of why breakups can be so painful. If there was more than just physical going on, it wouldn't be painful, but there's a relational thing going on. There's a spiritual thing going on and breakups can be painful. My students will often ask me the question in class, so, Kapsner, where's the line? How far can we go? Where's the line? And talk about those things, and I tell them that, well, I couldn't find the line in Ephesians 24 or anything. I read through the whole book, and it wasn't there. The Bible doesn't say anything about this is the line. But it's often the wrong question that we're asking uh, in terms of just how far we can go and where will there be no strings attached kinds of questions. And one way I heard talked about that I thought was sort of helpful is to recognize in the fact that there's more going on than just a physical relationship that I heard a presenter once say something along the lines of, you know, how comfortable would you be telling a future spouse something that you did with somebody in the past who is not your spouse? How comfortable would that conversation be? I thought about that for a bit, and I thought, well, I mean, if one of Hallie's past boyfriends showed up at our front door, I would not be like, hi, come on in for some tea, let's chat. I would I would probably want to, I don't know how to fight at all, at all, but I would try to learn in that moment as the past boyfriend showed up. I do have a Braveheart sword on the side of my bed that I got for my 40th birthday. I don't know how to use it at all, but I'm going to start learning to wield that thing in case somebody shows up. But it tells us a little bit about the idea that there's more going on 
in our relationships than just a physical exploration. There's a relational, there's a spiritual thing going on. There's a union that the further we go along in that continuum, the thicker those unions become. I know in ancient Judaism, they weren't even comfortable with holding each other's hands outside of the covenant of marriage. And as a father of five children, I am now reading ancient Judaism all the time. But it's the second pillar that as we construct this house on sexuality to recognize that it's all kind of been done before and just we're, we're not in a unique time, but it is a different and difficult time and also that there's more going on than just physical. Last pillar we talked about last week as we tried to get some of the biblical underpinning for sexual union and all of this and use the language that one flesh shows up for the first time in the Genesis 2 passage, where this male and this female are stewarding God's creation together. And in their stewardship as stewards, their primary call was to mediate God's image to the world, that when you saw the two of them, you saw the very face of God. And so Christians are often described, and especially in that lovely passage in Second Peter, as a royal priesthood. That what we do and who we are mediates, as the priest always has done in the Old Testament and New Testament and beyond, it mediates the presence of God to this world. And so one flesh does that as well. It gives us this beautiful picture in rightly ordered sexual union of other-centered beings in this wonderful Trinitarian dance of love that as the Father, Son, and Spirit exist in this dynamic, pulsating love that then flows out to all creation. So the wonder of sexual union is meant to reflect that same kind of relationship, this beautiful picture of an other-centered, not self-centered, Trinitarian love. The covenant of I will never leave you nor forsake you It gives us a wonderful picture of a God, a bride and the bridegroom, who says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And so the covenantal love of the Trinity is meant to be in the covenantal love of our relationships as well. And when we see that, we see a very picture of God. It's another part of the conversation that sex is not just about companionship we talked about last week. It's not just about procreation. That really, at its heart, it mediates God's beautiful image in this world. Which then takes us to where we left off last week. And that was that idea that as in 10 years of teaching this subject in universities, both Bethel and Northwestern, that what I've seen more often than not among our 18 to 22-year-olds is a lot of confusion and understandable turmoil and questions and fractures in this conversation. It's helpful to note that these are our best and our brightest, oftentimes, coming out of evangelical churches now to an evangelical school. These are kids who have grown up in youth group and in healthy homes, and yet they come into this environment, and as they crack open, we start seeing all of these questions and confusion and lines having been crossed. I used a Lego box example last week that oftentimes we have this beautiful invitation to build these Lego kits, but our hearts end up looking like my basement uh, at times. And so if, how many of you have seen this kind of Lego situation before? Okay, many, right? It all starts out so promising, and then we end up with this, and I think when we start looking at the Lego box of our soul relative to our questions on sexuality, For understandable reason, it feels like a really big mixed-up box that we don't really even know how to put back together and the wonder and the beauty of it. 
So I reviewed some of the questions and comments my students often have every term. These are some of the tamest and, again, most common. Understand that these eight questions are representative of about probably 80 or 150 or even 200 questions I get every term. But you can give you a little window into what I get to experience in my class every term. We're going to put some of the questions up on the screen that I get from my students. Do I have any hope for a future relationship now that I've gone too far and done everything? If I stay addicted to pornography, will I go to hell? What does the Bible say about transgenderism? If God doesn't make mistakes, how do we understand same-gender attraction? Anybody else have any of these questions, by the way? (laughs) Uh, I do on that. I don't think I have any future given the abuse I've experienced. You know, should we uh, test our sexual compatibility before we get married? Make sure we know we like each other. Does it matter if we cross lines when we're engaged if we're going to get married anyway? Or what should we do if our friend tells us that they are gay? And these are the tamest ones, by far. And they just go from there. There's dozens and dozens and dozens of questions in conversation, class after class, year after year. I I really do wish that you could all come and just sit in these classes with me and experience that. Before I started teaching this subject, I kind of knew that there was probably some questions, but I didn't know the extent to which it is taking shape. And I often feel now like a canary in a coal mine. I'm like, the air is leaving the place. We need to attend to some things here. Not just on that, but in so many areas for our young people, I think. I can't imagine being in schools over the last couple of weeks and having to think about what you have to think about. I was reading an article in CNN this last week about a student who was grateful that his military father had taught him how to deal with school shootings and knew what to do in those moments. And I thought, how, how did we get to that point where these are the questions being asked and they become normalized? It's a difficult reality. So do we have a pathway forward on all of these things for our young people? Because I feel overwhelmed most often. And I don't know the way forward on that. And so we talked about it. I've been in conversation with people saying if the questions are, have been around what's happening in sexuality, and that's, that's been useful for these two weeks, the question changes at some point. So how do we walk this out? The proverbial how then shall we live kind of question. How do we begin to, in practical ways, take steps forward towards healthiness and wholeness in our sexuality? It's a challenging question to say, how can a community of faith like Wyzetta begin to, in increasing ways, walk this out? And it's challenging because we don't see it in many churches. Again, my young people come into class and they will say, we maybe had one sermon about it uh, coming into our time here at school, or maybe we had a, a talk at youth group around Valentine's Day where we divided up the boys and said, stop struggling with pornography, and we divided up the girls and said, please be modest, and then that was the conversation. And there's so much going on. So how do we live in some of this? And how do we begin to walk it out? I have three suggestions this morning. And I'm really happy that I have three suggestions. It feels like a real sermon for the first time in my life. I have three points, Kevin. I couldn't get them all to rhyme, but I'm really excited about this. And just know they really are just suggestions. I don't have some dogmatic pathway forward because this is a little experimental. It's trial and error. I'm not going to stand up and claim to be the purveyor of this is how you do it. But I think they could be helpful suggestions in terms of what I've heard and seen from my students over these years, things that they seem to respond to and they attend to. 
And it's been trial and error for me in the classroom. I failed miserably very often, and you kind of pick up and go from there. So three suggestions. The first one, we'll spend a little bit more time on than the other two. But one thing that I found that can be so helpful to break the horns of the dilemma on this conversation is to, first of all, cultivate a community of faith that learns how to hold the tension of both grace and truth. For the Gospel of John, Jesus is described as one that we beheld the glory of, and he was filled with both grace and truth, somehow at the same time. He could do them both. In terms of the grace sides of things, it does feel like we need a lot of that just now. I tell my students often that it would actually be weird if you weren't confused and in turmoil on some of these topics, but just know that as we come into the light with those things in the darkness of our souls, that what you will be greeted with in the beautiful face of God is grace. There will be a God who turns his face towards you. You know, they so often think, yeah, I've been struggling with something for two or three days uh, or two or three years or almost an entire lifetime. And, and as we talk about it in class, they'll say, if I can just have one or two really good days where I don't click on that link or I didn't do this with my boyfriend or my girlfriend or whatever it is, if I can just have one or two really good days, then maybe I could turn my face back towards God. Now, I have to have those one or two days. You just need to turn your face back towards God, where grace will meet you every step of the way. Grace is a beautiful invitation. It invites us into the light without fear. Can we have grace for one another in these conversations? Because it would be weird if we weren't all a little bit confused. There's been a lot of layers of questions that have left, been left unattended to, and they've kind of piled up over all of these years. I, maybe a silly analogy, but as the city of Jerusalem, if you've ever been there, is a city that if you just walked around it, you would think this is the way it's always been. But if you know something about the history of Jerusalem, it's been destroyed and rebuilt and destroyed and rebuilt and destroyed and rebuilt. And you can't really even see the original city anymore. You'd have to dig back through some very complicated and tricky layers to be able to see anything of the original city. And when we look back at 50 years of sexuality in our culture here in the United States, we've been on quite a run in terms of the destruction of a past, a rebuild, a destruction of a past, and a rebuild. We've been living this out in some really interesting ways in world history. The sexual revolution of the 1960s brought with it for the first time in our culture the idea that covenant marriage maybe was old and archaic, and that real freedom was that you could make love and not war with anyone around you, multiple covenant partners, And so it was the idea of making love that was freedom with whoever and wherever, and it changed the sort of norms. And from that place, the divorce rate in the 1970s went from a stable less than 10% that had been that way for decades and decades and decades. Uh, The generation or the, the decade after the sexual freedom movement, the divorce rate went way north of 50%. And I remember... I didn't really know what to do about this in the churches. I didn't know how to help people. It was so confusing and it was so um, hard to know what to do. And unfortunately, so many people that were struggling in their marriages ended up not maybe getting the help that they needed because the church didn't really know what to do other than maybe do some gossip about it where, can, did you hear what happened in their relationship? I remember people feeling like they walked around the church back in that time and they felt like they had a, a very large scarlet D on their forehead for the divorce. 
And what was destroyed got rebuilt, and pretty soon it was a normative landscape and people hurting, and we didn't know how to help. And as those ideas of sexual freedom took root, maybe you remember some of this, as we began to work outside the covenant relationship, then what started happening was the proliferation of sexually transmitted diseases. And so in the 1990s, the conversation shifted in our schools to, well, of course, you're going to have sex, just make sure you have safe sex. Do you remember that? Where that was the conversation. And we were wondering, should we distribute birth control in the schools? Have sex, just make sure you're safe about it. And we didn't know how to address that, maybe then shaking our wagging finger every once in a while. And then that became normal, and then the landscape shifted again to cohabitation. I remember doing marriage counseling in the late 1990s, and cohabitation began to run roughshod through our culture, and and not knowing what to do, we sort of just said to couples, well, I guess you can stay in the same home, just don't sleep in the same room, (laughs) as if that was going to work on that. So many questions, didn't know what to do, previous norms destroyed, another layer rebuilt, we hadn't been able to see it, that got normalized, and then... After that, we see the internet take shape, and pornography went from underneath a parent's bed to exploding into our pockets all day long with the phone. It was already destructive enough when it was a magazine, and it began to then shift everything, and TV shows like Friends began to celebrate pornography as indicative of a healthy relationship. Some of the recent stats on pornography is it's up to at least 95, if not 99% of men struggle with pornography or have. And then the pornography industry at $6 billion uh, understood that it couldn't grow the marketplace anymore, so they shifted and tailored and reshaped the message a bit to more appeal towards women. And now pornography is the fastest growing reality among women in our culture, just from the shift of the message. It's a different landscape. It's a different confusing time. And then I remember in 2009 when I would do Q&A with the students, there was not a single question about same-gender relationships. And then we had the conversation of the marriage amendment in our culture, and I came back in 2010, and my face was just blown back by every single question was about same-gender relationships, and I just said, I don't have any idea. I don't know how to approach this conversation. And the landscape's been destroyed and rebuilt, and now the questions are about gender identity and fluidity, and it's layer upon layer. If we're not confused, it would be surprising. And if our kids aren't confused, it would be surprising. So can we have grace for each other to come out in the light with our questions? Because what kind of God would greet us there? You know, it seems to me that God so loved the world, which is why he came to die and to save and to heal and to restore. Uh, We don't have to wait three days of having a really good week where I had my quiet time at 6 a.m. by a pool of liquid as the sun was rising in Ephesians. I have three good days of that. Now, go have your quiet time at 6 (laughs) a.m. But we don't need to wait to have three good days. God's face is always there. Can we have grace for each other? But it also brings up this other side of Jesus, and that is the side of truth, and that's a scary idea in today's culture, that there is a truth in the kingdom. So I'm going to say something. And it's going to sound terrible. Uh, so just hold on for a second as I, as I say this. Um, I would suggest that in pursuing truth, that the thing Christians really need to learn how to become is Christians have to learn how to become extremely judgmental. <laughs> How's that sound? Is that sound? That's a good one? Yeah, because that doesn't... Okay, so let me, <laughs> let me explain. Everybody's like, oh my gosh, Capsner. Okay. Um, 
I was really grateful a few years ago to an article I read in Christianity Today that talked about there's different forms of judgment in the biblical text. It's not one size fits all, and there are some kinds of judgments to which we're called, and there's some kinds that we're not called to. And so when Jesus uses that famous passage, do not judge, he's talking about a specific kind of judgment that we're not called to do as believers. You're familiar with that passage, do not judge, right? And in our context these days, that passage is often being used, I don't know how it is for you, but it's most often being used to shut down any conversations about really anything, but specifically sexuality as well, which is, don't judge me, you can't judge me, stop judging me, judge, 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 and then I will like maybe be uncomfortable and I'll say, I don't want to judge, but and then I don't know what to do, and then the whole conversation shuts down. But to use that do not judge in this way is perhaps to misunderstand the words of Jesus and his teaching in this moment. For when Jesus was using this passage, do not judge, he was talking about a very specific kind of judgment that Christians are absolutely not called to do. That judgment is to condemn another person and to say to them, you have no hope or no future or no place in the kingdom. Jesus addresses this because the Pharisees were always walking around in the culture looking at the least and the lost and the fractured and the broken and saying, here's the deal. Uh, you are getting what you deserved. You are a sinner. You belong on the outskirts of society. There is no hope for you at the table of fellowship and God. You are condemned. This is your lot in life. This is who you will always be. To which Jesus says, don't you dare ever judge people in that way. For in my kingdom, there is always hope and always future, regardless of the past. The cross and the tomb that I'm headed towards will show you that there is always future. If I can beat death, I can restore all things. So to those in the highways and the byways and the least and the lost, beat the bushes, actually, and bring my people to the table. Don't ever judge people in that way. But by contrast, there is a form of judgment that Christians are called to. And that is the judgment of discernment. The discernment of those things that are part of just a simple life of health and peace and goodness and delight in the kingdom, the way of discernment. I think we sort of know that how destructive lying can be in a community. And so we would discern lying is not part of the wonderful ways of God's delight. It's going to destroy the beautiful relationships of love and other-centered joy that we are meant to have. It wreaks havoc. So we discern and judge that lying is not part of the community. Gossip tears down more churches than anything I've seen in my 25 or 30 years in ministry. Hardly ever is it the moral failings of people in leadership, though it includes that, but it's hardly ever that that destroys churches. It's almost always the gossip that tears things apart. It doesn't belong in the kingdom. There are things to discern. This is a terrible example. (laughs) I'm sure Hallie hates it when I use this example, but I'll roll with it anyway. Um, If somebody came over to our house this afternoon and ate one of my cats, (laughs) I, I would judge that that was wrong. I would say, you know what? Stop eating my cats. I don't like it when you eat my cats. And if you continue to eat my cats, we're going to become a neighborhood where we're going to start learning to eat each other's pets. And there's going to be no peace in the neighborhood at all. There's no shalom in being a pet eater on this. We're called to care for each other's pets, not eat them. It is a terrible example. I get it. (laughs) But the point of all of this, and I think we know, don't we know, that there's ways of delight towards which we're called. And we're called to discern those ways of uh, delight and to walk in them. 
But here's the thing. We do those ways of delight not to appease an otherwise generally angry God. I better be good or God's going to be angry. That's not why we do it. And we don't do it to prove our obedience or even our gratefulness, perhaps. I know so many times in my journey I feel like I've got to do good things because I have to be grateful that I got saved. That's to miss the point of this beautiful other-centered God who simply out of the overflow of his love created ways of delight that we are just meant to walk in in laughter and joy and peace and love. Sometimes when people ask me, you know, Captain, how's your walk? I hate that question. <laughs> how's your walk? And I'll, ask the, and I'll answer by saying, when's the last time that I laughed with freedom? When is the last time that it was just fun to just be present with my kids and making malts on a random Monday night and laughing about the possibilities of cookie dough versus mint chocolate chip? Because there's a little bit of delight and laughter. This is the ways of the kingdom. And God's like, just play in my playground. My playground's beautiful. But like we do with our kids, God does with us. We don't give boundaries to our kids because we have to prove something and we're all powerful. We can be like, just play in freedom. Stay within the boundaries. You'll play in freedom. So imagine a community where there are no sexual paths and no pornography and no inappropriate relationships, no vulgar language about sex, only one person that you might find to share a life of covenant, never-leaving love. No confusion, no images, just the beloved. It would be a lovely place of God's delight. Because in the kingdom of God, sexuality is non-confused peace. There is wholeness in that. But we live in a city of sexuality that has been destroyed and rebuilt and destroyed and rebuilt, and so it's hard to see. But can we cultivate a kind of community where grace is there and present and you can come in the light with anything without fear? Because God is for you. And in those places, you start walking and we start walking towards truth and wholeness. I'm so grateful for the times in my life when I could finally come into the light with the darkness of the soul and I found a God who was for me. I said I can heal and transform and restore all of what has been broken. Thank you for your truth, God, in that, that I can live in freedom and peace. First suggestion is hold the tension of grace and truth. Second suggestion, these are faster now, but no less important, perhaps. And that is that we continue to have conversations in an ongoing way about this topic. That we do the hard work of digging into these things. I can't tell you how many times people will say something like, Peter, can you come to our church and fix everything in 40 minutes in between services? <laughs> to which I say, I can't fix anything, first of all. Uh, second of all, it's going to take some time. If what's streaming through Netflix every single day of our lives, if what's coming through our phones and all of these voices all day long, we're going to need to have an ongoing voice, more than just one birds and bees conversation. It starts with our kids who at very early ages, are being asked if they are male or female. Now we need to start early and often and be a voice in the midst of all of this going on, grace and truth at the same time, with families and singles and children and grandparents sitting around bonfires and talking over s'mores and good chocolate, not Hershey's, dealing with things on Sunday mornings with our classes. I'm so grateful Becca opened up the box for as long as she has and all the ways Kevin described that we're doing this year, because if the questions feel hard, it's because they are hard. And it's not resolvable within just a two-minute conversation. So, for example, just to give you a sense of things, over the years, in that 2010 moment when my students are like, Captain, what about same-gender relationships? And I'm like, I don't have any idea on this. 
for the last five or so years, the students have pressed me, you've got to go research this and study this. And not that I have all the pathway forwards on it, but uh, there's been five years of research, and Northwestern has commissioned me to write a book on it. I don't know that I ever will on that, but it's been a really interesting and fascinating and empowering and difficult pursuit. And so I can show you now that we're up to 54 slides in a PowerPoint that we show in class over the course of about maybe eight to 10 hours on this conversation on same gender relationships. So this won't take long to go through the 54 slides. Sarah, can you just kind of help us all see what's in this conversation? Hit it. Yeah, keep going. Yep, that's great. Keep going. Wonderful. I hope you're picking all of this up. This is really important that you get all of this right now. Yeah, okay. No, keep going. We're good. Yep. Okay. Keep. Yeah, there we go. Okay. So I hope you got all of that. I know our attention spans have gotten shorter as we've gone along, so that felt like we were dialed right in right there. But uh, the students appreciate as we start asking questions about what does the Bible have to say about it, and why do different people come to different interpretations, and why could you go to church A on this side of the street, and they would say, we're not going to marry same-gender people, or people in same-gender relationships based on the Bible. And then you can go across the street to Church B and they say, well, we looked at the Bible and we are going to marry people in same gender relationships. Why that? What's happening? Or how do we understand the idea that if God doesn't make mistakes, but I've been attracted to the same gender ever since I can remember, how do we walk these things out? What do we, should we attend a gay marriage if it's one of our relatives or friends? I know a story of a guy... This is the grace and truth kind of thing. He, he did attend, he decided to attend the same gender ceremony of his niece. And there's a photo of him on Facebook that he took with his niece at the ceremony. And on one side, he was completely reviled for even showing up at the wedding at all. And on the other side, he was completely reviled for not smiling wide enough in embrace of the ceremony. Trying to find this tricky third way of grace and truth. Where Jesus' table is open to everyone. And yet, the point is not to just sit at the table. The table is open because there's an invitation then, as you do life with salvation, that being Jesus, to walk towards wholeness and peace. In American culture, inclusivity is the goal. In the kingdom, wholeness is the goal. Those are two very different things. And the kingdom always includes, but it also always pulls towards wholeness. Not because we have to prove something to an angry God, but because we can live in the ways of his delight and in freedom and peace. Which brings us to the last suggestion. Again, none of these dogmatic. But I think we could cultivate a community of grace and truth, and I think we could come to understand so many of these different kinds of issues. But I think that we would still run the risk of falling short because we can't walk in healing and wholeness on our own. And so it's only Jesus. Name is Yeshua in the Hebrew salvation. He will save his people from their sins who's come to break the power of sin, to restore and to heal, and to set things right. I love the picture of Aslan in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, who, in, in, a, in a world, that Narnia, that was so confused, and in the deep freeze of the witch, everywhere Aslan went, everything was being brought back to life. And stone statues were being brought back to flesh, and blossoms were coming, and spring was breaking everywhere he set his foot. Jesus' life was very much that way. Everywhere salvation, Yeshua, Jesus went, things were being set right. People were being healed and restored and brought back to life. And lepers, who are often a picture of sin in the biblical text, were being healed. And Jesus would say things like, if I can heal this, how much more can I forgive and bring the fullness of life back? 
And I don't know how he does it always. I don't have three easy steps. If you just go home and pray or just do this or that. But he's real. I know stories upon stories. I'm grateful, again, Kevin mentioned the Gateway Ministries. It's a very unique ministry in which we can encounter Jesus in those places. And things get set right in ways that are difficult to describe. I know a story of a couple where I think it was she that had a sexual past. And because she was experiencing kind of this dimension, it's a very common story. This is one of literally hundreds I've heard where because of her past and her now existing marriage relationship, she and her husband would talk about this idea that their bedroom didn't feel empty. It didn't feel alone. It felt like there was a lot of people there with them. It's hard to navigate. And pictures and past and power at work, that was difficult to know what to do. And she went with some trusted friends based on the advice of somebody who was teaching some of these in a, some of these ideas in a conference uh, to go and just ask God to break the ties of her past so that she could be whole and healed moving towards the future. And Jesus did that where she walked in the door. This is not an exaggeration. She walked in the door that day and her husband saw her and then did a double take. And he didn't know that she had done what she had done. And he looked at her and he said these words, what is different about you? You feel like you're fully mine. Greeting Jesus, breaking ties, salvation Yeshua has come. I know another story of a person in the destructive influence of pornography. They learn to manage it, you know, the sin management approach in this whole thing where we get accountability groups and, and internet blockers. And we do all that, and I get it. If we're struggling, it helps to have some boundaries. But that person began to realize that there wasn't actual freedom in that, that as they walked around the world, they still saw everyone through the lens of sexual potentiality. They couldn't see beauty and wonder. They could only see all of this active reality of what they've been a part of, even though they weren't doing it anymore. And broken by that, they turned their face towards a God of grace and said, can there be freedom? and wholeness and healing. And after five terribly difficult years with God, because God's hardly ever the Aladdin genie in the bottle. Because he wants our heart. And that often takes a lot longer. Because God knows if he has our heart, then the behavior is going to flow. And God did the work from that, and that person will describe the idea of the first time they experienced true, true freedom. They were walking around a mall one day, and we're just like, whoa. I am I am seeing people differently. I don't even understand how or why, but I'm no longer pulled in. And as I walk by Victoria's Secret, it doesn't do that to me anymore. In fact, I'm sad by what I see. Not angry, not judgmental in the condemning kind of way, just sad for the brokenness and the pain and the suffering, the kind of sadness Jesus exhibited when he wept over Jerusalem and said, I just would love to have you under my wings. So if we can look at our Lego boxes together, I would suggest that we can do so without fear because grace meets us. And in that grace, we can walk towards truth because truth sets us free. And there are pathways for it to understand all of this stuff. We can slowly become these sort of like little Christian excavators <laughs> to dig back through all the layers and see the wonder of the kingdom in that place. But if we did all that work, the thing that is sweetest about that is I know my Redeemer lives today. And you can be experienced and encountered, and Yeshua salvation is still walking around all of the Narnia of this world, and he's bringing things back to wholeness and help and peace. So we'll put some words up on the screen now and just kind of sit in these words for a little bit. I think to understand, first of all, that God is for us is such a helpful piece of the puzzle. And then we'll sing a very simple song of faith 
I was grateful, Kevin, that you mentioned Billy Graham's passing this week. There's such a simplicity of the gospel that was part of his life. And Come As You Are and Jesus Loves Me and these just lovely little songs that present fundamental truths about the kingdom. So we'll sit in some of the video, we'll sing together, and then we'll close in prayer. Thank you for the time on sexuality. It's a starting point, and we can keep walking it out as we move forward.